Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. Fun, fun week this week. You know why? Uh, why? We've got a special edition of the Weekly Typographic. <laughs> I love your enthusiasm and I respect it. Year-end wrap-up, everybody. We got some great links. It's like the first of our two year-end wrap-ups we're going to do. This one will be our favorite share-worthy font reads. So revolving around typography, but we have like a nice big mix of typographic things in here. So I'm very excited to kind of review what we thought was great, what our readers loved from the year, that you should just pass on to people that love their type and love all that about it so i think this was an idea that you started last year and i feel like it was it was a little bit of a hit we certainly enjoyed doing it i feel like a lot of people responded and said that they loved kind of reviewing some of the best links from the year Mm -hmm. uh and so we thought we would do it again and we at least tried to do it with actual data this year i wrote a whole little script to like pick out what people had clicked the most what people were opening the most some of that script ended up being a little not that helpful, but we then kind of combined that with, you know, some of our actual favorites that we remembered. Oh, yes. So lots of good ones in here. Before we get into links, just a quick reminder, we've got a workshop happening next month. So, you know, start of 2022, uh, if you want to get your pricing all settled for the year, as a freelancer, part-time or full-time, I recommend att- attending Jazz's Charge Your Worth pricing workshop. Uh, that's going to be January 8th and 9th, and it's going to be a freaking blast, guys. <laughs> this is the thing that we're, we're basically talking about all month because, uh, you know, a lot of December for us is sort of review and not putting out new stuff other than that. And so we thought it was a really good opportunity since... Next month's workshop with Jasmine is kind of an unprecedented thing for us where we're sort of reaching into the category of the business of type and design. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like a good excuse to just like make it clear all month. Hey, hey, this is happening next month and you do not want to miss it. And I don't know about anybody else, but I still have some business deductions that I want to put on my 2021 taxes. So mm. uh, very I think I'm going to buy myself a ticket. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. All right. Are we ready to dive in? Are you ready to jump in? Yeah, it's going to be kind of a shorter week, which is like fine because everyone's got their holiday stuff to get to. Let's start with our first link, and it is titled Evaluating the Quality of a Typeface by Indra Kupferschmid. I hope I got that right. Um, <laughs> she comes all the way from Germany, but it was published by Fontstand News. And it's an amazing little list of some of the features you can find in quote unquote good fonts. So I think there's some we're more familiar with, like making sure there's like proper diacritics in a font, making sure it's a full set of characters, even stroke thickness for thins and thicks. But then she has some really good advice about things I haven't really seen before. So making sure that the kerning is good with 
tricky glyph combinations. And she says, a high number of kerning pairs does not equal high quality. It may, in fact, indicate spacing flaws. So I think that's really interesting because I, I've designed type before, so I understand that kerning is kind of the last step. And kerning is dependent on good spacing within your font. So the more good spacing you have within your font, the less kerning pairs you have to do. So I thought that was mm. kind of like an interesting way to turn that on its head. Also, she mentions how low quality fonts often forget to set a word space. I've dealt with this before in fonts I've been forced to use. It is a pain <laughs> in my butt. I have to like manually change the word space like every time I use that. Also, just a tip from Olivia. Check those word spaces because that can really <laughs> kick your butt if you don't. I don't even remember this article from the first pass. Reading this was kind of new to me. Even if we've talked about it before, I must have forgotten about it. And this is like, this is a really great, albeit sort of short, but also uh, specific and dense mm -hmm. concepts in this list. And it just makes me think like, I wish it was illustrated. We should illustrate it. Ooh, yeah. That's so right. Give her some credit. Because there are like so many things that make more sense with some visuals attached as well. I love that they also bring up hinting. It can be basic, mm. it can be automatic, but just reasonable rendering on Windows systems. So if anyone's asking where out there do you need the hinting to matter, I guess Windows systems matter a little bit more than I'm assuming Mac systems. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely. But like Windows systems are notoriously much different than Mac systems in that. Oh, regard. right. You have taught us that. I also think this came out when we were having a break at the league. So that might be why we haven't read this before. But it is excellent. Oh, interesting. Okay, so maybe I'm not crazy. I mean, sometimes nah. I feel crazy, and sometimes I am crazy, and sometimes it just feels like I am crazy. No, I love being able to revisit this now when we didn't get a chance to talk about it over the summer. All right, jumping right along. This was my pick for the newsletter. This one I remember. I love this one. So it's Creating a Handwritten Font for Culture Amp by Olivia King. And this is really interesting. So... It is about Olivia King's team, and they work at a studio. I'm going to find the name right here so I don't forget next time. So Olivia King and Mel Bailash from For the People, which is a design studio, took on this client Culture Amp and were asked to create a custom handwritten typeface for them. They partnered with type designer Mathieu Regue. It is French, and I tried my best. <laughs> and... With that, Olivia King's team art directed a handwritten typeface for a custom project. And I feel like that process is actually not really told very often from the perspective of the art direction. It's sometimes told from the perspective of a type designer having to design something for a client. But I've worked on art directing typography and custom type. And I think that's just a more common thing in the branding world. So it was great to hear that perspective. Also, handwritten fonts, as much as people say, oh, you can start your first font with a handwritten font to make it like pretty high quality to be used across a lot of mediums. There's just so much detail that needs to be put in. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure that it doesn't feel phony or feel like a handwritten font the way that Comic Sans does. You need alternative glyphs to make it feel like it's actually has some sort of humanity in there. And then at certain scales, they want to make sure that there was some sort of noisy texture in there as well. So it just goes over all these details. And I was just so impressed. I love them starting from the very top, which is before they even brought a type designer in. I think Olivia King 
used someone's handwriting and just scanned it into glyphs and put together just like a proof of concept real fast. And I feel like even something like that that's so down and dirty is like just not talked about very often. And like it's okay to have that part of your process to sell something in even if you don't have like a finished typeface. If it can get it to sell it in even if it's like a rough glyphs file, I'm all for that. That's a really good point. And I remember too when we first talked about this that I I went and looked at it in use on their website and was really impressed. It's linked to in the article, the Culture Amp website. I was just really impressed at how good it looks in use. This whole article is beautifully designed. The details and backstory are beautiful. The work in progress is beautiful. Like the high res zoomed in version of the handwriting where you get to see like some of the intentional inconsistencies to make it feel more handmade. It's beautiful. And then you see it in use and the type that they pair it with and the illustrations that they pair it with and how it like contrasts with some of the preciseness of the rest of the art direction for the brand. It just ends up really beautiful. And I remember, I mean, I noticed this again, but I remember talking about one of the things that I really liked was just how well it fits in with the other font, the like yeah. beautiful serif font that it's paired with. The sizing is fantastic. And in a few instances of the usage of it, they have this like sharp underline under the handwriting that while the baseline jumps a bit because it's handwriting, the underline when they use it really just makes it feel so cohesive and tied together. And it's like those tiny little details that are just, oh man, that's that's the polish that takes something from like good to great. For sure. I definitely like that you mentioned how it feels against the very precise design elements that it's working on because everything else, like there's some pretty funky colors in their scheme, but the typography is very straightforward, well-crafted serif that it lives against and it really does i know this is like cliche but it like does add a touch of humanity to it it's mm -hmm. not taking over the typography completely where it feels juvenile it's just like used in very specific places and you can just it's just valuable and nice to see and i just hope to see more kind of deep dives like this in the future yeah i agree fully amazing next up is one of my favorites as well it's the origin story of the Wingdings font. <laughs> I do remember when this came up and you were very excited about it. Yeah, we did a whole nerd alert on Wingdings, so I'm not going to repeat that here. But it is a really fascinating history, one that goes back all the way from like early printing press world. And early on, I'm not going to give exact years, but you can think about centuries ago when you had a typeset characters and typography and it kind of locked into a grid, so to speak. For imaginative purposes and to create ornament within these printing limitations they made dingbats which were basically a reusable set of symbols and special characters that you could arrange to become ornamental pieces so you could either like frame your text or embellish your printed pages with these kind of symbols or icons or little touches of ornament and they give an example of that in the article and so that was basically recreated in the digital age I believe first by Herman Zapp, which is why we had Zapp Dingbats, which I think is still on a lot of computers. And then from there, Charles Bigelow and Chris Holmes created more Dingbat fonts, including Lucida icons, Lucida arrows, and Lucida stars. And the library of Dingbats grew until eventually Microsoft 
give it its own name in combination with windows and dingbats made wingdings everybody and that's just like such a fun story and it talks about like some of the weird controversy that has appeared after the invention of wingdings and it's just like i think very imbued in funny early computer culture that maybe people don't even know that much anymore but i appreciate that was a very concise backstory considering we did a whole nerd alert on it and you did all that research thanks So the next one, I have to admit, I also don't recognize the next article of logo design, 15 golden rules for crafting logos. And I was like, when the heck did we talk about this? And so it was like at least new information in my forgetful brain. It's okay. It came out in January. So it was 11 months ago when we released this article. Oh my gosh. That's basically (laughs) 30 years ago. Yeah, I figured in your head. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't necessarily love the way Creative Block's website is designed. So I'll just disclaim Mm. that here. But I think there's some interesting tips. I think we included this because it was a super popular article the week it came out. And people found it pretty helpful. There is some pretty basic rules of logo design that you learn in college. Like lay the groundwork. Think about what you are creating with your logo is going to symbolize a purpose for your brand. So there's there's really basic stuff like that. Keep it in black and white to start, which I think is a controversial point in these days and ages we live in. But then I think there's some interesting things that make you consider logos around you. Like there's a tip that says don't be too literal. And it shows the Penguin logo for Penguin Random House, the publishing house, and then shows the Shell logo. And you're like, oh, yeah. I guess those are mascots for a thing that it's representing, but the shell logo doesn't have like a tank of gas with it or like the penguin logo doesn't have like a penguin with the book. That was an interesting point. But again, there's some pretty familiar ones like, you know, consider making sure everyone has some input on a logo to make sure that someone's not seeing it as an inappropriate icon or like it's not as inappropriate in a different language or something like that. But yeah, yeah, there's some good tips in here. I highly recommend you you opening this up and looking for number 11, always get a second opinion, which is what you were just talking about. If you're listening at home, highly worth looking at. Even the Airbnb logo, I'm still like, did we really land there? Did we really land on this logo? I mean, that's so fair. And that one was interesting. You're talking about number 15, accept public criticism. Mm, that's is that fair. what you're talking about? No, I'm just talking about the Airbnb logo in general, but yeah. Oh, I guess it's at least referenced in in the listen to criticism point where it's saying like this design studio has experienced backlash several times. Like they Mm. put stuff out and a lot of people are like, what? No, that's horrible. Why would you do that? And they have to listen to that and pay some attention to how the market perceives the work that they are making. I see that. That's good advice. Yeah, it's important. I want to get your take. Do you think in this day and age, do we have to start with thinking about the logo in black and white? Well, you know, we had that one the other week where it was like intentionally not designed for black and white. The Johnny Ivy one. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive. You're going to have to do that forever. (laughs) I'm sorry. That is uh, your job now. Yeah, no, you're right. I don't know. I mean, I still really love a great logo that works in black and white like there's some classicalness like romanticism in that that i appreciate Mm -hmm. but i definitely don't think that it's a requirement anymore 
Right. If you're never going to be printing in black and white, and I say printing because if you have any digital thing in black and white, it's intentional at this point. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, most of us do a bad job of paying attention to accessibility. That is a totally separate argument. But in general, it's a nice to have to make sure that it works in black and white at this point. Yeah, Living yeah. 2021, it's a digital world. I don't think we should not consider it, but I don't necessarily think we need to start there anymore. There may be points, depending on how your brand lives. Like, if your brand is literally only going to live on an app or on a computer screen, then you're fine. If you're designing for a multi-million dollar company that maybe, yes, primarily lives on digital, but is going to throw events and is going to have, like, a huge team across the world... You're going to probably want something that, like, can adapt to black and white. There will probably be an instance at some point. To be fair, okay, I think we, you know, we might get some passionate people sending us an email debating this. And I think the intention behind that, that advice of make sure it works in black and white is not so much black and white versus color like we're talking about. Mm. But it's... uh make sure it's like a distinguishable mark. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, I still think that that isn't always necessary anymore. There are companies who their entire company and revenue is based on an iPhone app where their logo can just be the icon for the app. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's different and unique enough that you recognize that illustration, that can be it. That's That might be all you need. Agreed. I like this. Yeah. Good thinking. I'm curious to hear what other people think as well. Our last article is a really fun one. It is called Inside the Design, The Case for Better Watch Typography by Liz Stinson for Hodinkee, which I think is (laughs) a watch, a watch loving website. I actually never investigated the actual base website for this, so I don't even I don't even know. I'm about to open it up and check it out, but it seems like it's all about watches. There is a Hodinkee store opening very close to my office in Soho. Oh, so it is like a watch company. They sell the watches. Maybe? I don't know. All these brands doing their own thing these days around the world. So <laughs> people love watches. I love this article. I think it talks about the design of everyday things in like a typographic lens. So um, it starts the article by talking about this watch that came out from Hermes called the Slim Dermes in 2012. And they commissioned the typography to be custom for the watch by Philippe Appelois, who I think is a pretty famous designer in France. And he's done a lot of typography and poster design. So he describes what it meant to like be designing typography for a really expensive watch. All the watches we're going to talk about in this article are very expensive. Like you have to think five figures. And I think him talking about translating the visual language of Hermes into these numbers. And he did some aesthetic modifications to make it feel really light, to feel modern, to feel timeless no pun intended, to reduce each number to its elemental parts, which I think is kind of this beautiful way to describe how you're going to design type for a watch. But later in the article, it gives us lots of examples of watch designs that don't implement a lot of care or craftsmanship, talking about five-figure watches that will use a stretch version of Times New Roman, using typefaces that were originally created for word processing software, signage, and newspapers, 
and putting them on these really expensive watch designs because people designing the watch aren't necessarily taking into account the the you know craft of typography and type design and how that interesting dynamic has played out and of course they interview Jonathan Heffler and ask him how he feels about it and he has lots of feelings that if you're going to be designing something that is all about craftsmanship why are you letting the fonts just be some stock font that everyone knows I just think it's pretty interesting we were talking about luxury a few weeks back the very small details do matter I agree and this article still blows my mind that that that's even the case that every detail on something like this doesn't matter. Right. I mean, it does matter. We're saying it does matter. But the fact that it wasn't considered is what I mean. Yeah. And there's this really beautiful shot of a Chanel watch. I think that's down towards the bottom of the article. And the numbers on that were custom designed. And it's just like, it feels that level of craft that it's not just like, some typeface that they were get, able to get off the shelf, but it like really has this holistic feeling of the type matching kind of the rest of the design and feeling so kind of beautifully crafted. I do wonder if maybe watches will start considering this if we think about things like our iPhones or stuff like that, where there is custom type designed for the product that we are paying money for and thinking about how that holistically should make sense. Like in the products that we're using every day and that we care about, why shouldn't that be extended to our luxury products that we're buying? Yeah, it is a great point. Fascinating. Very fun. Just a fun one. And I feel like anyone could appreciate this, not just like type nerds. So that's why it was good to pull it in. This was a great roundup. I feel like this actually encompasses a lot of what we've tried to do this year, which is look at typography and trends and advice from as many angles as we can find. Yeah. We've had workshops this year that were about making your first typeface ever. And then we're like sharing stuff about typography and everyday items. We're sharing stuff about branding. It's just, you know, I think, I think we have made a really good effort. You and Steph especially is basically why I'm bringing it up as a subtle thank you of trying to approach finding good stuff to share with everybody from many different angles. I speak for probably a lot of people out here when I appreciate that. Wow. I find it to be very fun and I rather get stuff from a lot of different sources rather than just like the nerdiest of the nerds or the beginner amateur levels. I think just having a range gives it nice Says the woman who invented nerd alerts. Oh, (laughs) well, next week we're going to have another fun roundup and it's all a bunch of free fonts. So like, guys, you're not going to want to miss out. It's going to be a good time. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Doodly doot. Doodly doot.